Our top story today, ICBC is offering a new discount. So if you drive less than 10K per year, you can get a discount anywhere from 10 to 15%. It's building on a previous paid to drive program, basically giving you a discount if you drove less than 5K. It's part of ICBC's usage-based insurance. And if you are renewing starting June 1st, you could qualify. Let's talk to Greg Harper. He's Media Relations Advisor with ICBC. Good afternoon, Greg. Good afternoon, Robin. First of all, tell us how it works and what are the cost savings for the average driver who does take part in this? Yeah, so this is a a new distance-based discount that we're offering. So it is for British Columbians who drive less than 10,000 kilometers per year if they have an eligible vehicle. And this This would be most passenger vehicles, um, motorcycles, RVs, collector vehicles, and some other vehicles aren't included here because uh, our customers with those types of vehicles already pay less for their insurance based on driving less. Um, So, you know, what we found here is there are many British Columbians, um, their, their driving habits, their driving pattern has changed. A lot of people are... Uh, well, some working from home full time, some are in, in a hybrid situation, bottom line. Um, you know, many more British Columbians are driving less. So this, um, if you're eligible for this, if you're driving under 10,000 kilometers per year, um, you can save uh, between uh, 10 to 15% on select optional coverage um, with ICBC. Is this an incentive to get people off the road? I wouldn't say it's an incentive to get people off the road. I think it's um, I think it's British Columbians who are driving less that that will benefit because of course the less that you drive, the less time that you spend on the road, that lowers your risk of, of getting into a crash significantly. So that's really what this is all about. If you drive less, you're at a lower risk of getting into a crash. Okay, this the incentive is to cut down on collisions. How has this pay as you drive program worked in other jurisdictions? Do you have any research based on that? I, I don't have information based on other jurisdictions, um, but I, I know this is something that, um, you know, this, there's an appetite for this here in, in, in BC. I mean, today, more than 50% of our eligible uh, customers are providing their odometer reading, either uh, online or, or through their broker. Um, you know, people obviously want to pay, uh, you know, they don't they don't they only want they don't want to pay a lot for their insurance right so i mean we're we're customer driven here um and you know our goal is to provide um affordable insurance for, for our customers greg you talk about drivers having to provide proof with their odometer how do you ensure that there's no fraud with that um well i mean many of our customers are providing their odometer reading when they go to their broker and others can do this when they renew online. So they take a a photo of their uh, odometer reading and submit that online or at uh, their brokers. Um, You know, I I, I, I would think that most are are following the rules here um, and are um, providing the correct odometer reading. What about young drivers who pay the highest premiums right now? Will this benefit them? Yeah, if if you drive less than 10,000 kilometers a year and you have an eligible vehicle, 
you will receive a, a discount on your optional coverage if you have that that um, that eligible coverage with us. This discount, though, isn't it going to hurt ICBC's bottom line? No, because the, those who are benefiting are, are, are on the road are they're uh, less of a risk of getting into a crash. So, no, it will not. Earlier, though, you talked about uh, people who are working from home, et cetera. Was that what prompted this policy? Um, what prompted it, we know that there are more and more British Columbians that are driving less. So we wanted to pr- pr- provide a product that was reflective of that. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the less you're on the road, um, you know, the, the lower the risk of getting into a crash. What about people who live in smaller towns uh, where there is less transit, etc.? Will they be driving more? Will they be driving less? Is this a good incentive for them? Or is it going to be something that benefits people who live in the city? You know, that's interesting. Um, you know, it's some people have to make their own decision. I mean, we understand that some people live in areas, albeit rural or urban, Um, maybe they have to travel a greater distance to get to their workplace. Um, You know, the bottom line, it's uh, this benefits those who are driving less. They're not on the road as much. Um, Their their risk of getting into a crash is much lower. Okay. Greg Harper with ICBC, thank you so much for, for being with us this afternoon. All right. Thanks for having me. At the top of the hour, we were talking about how ICBC has introduced a new pay-as-you-drive program. So if you drive less than 10K a year, you're going to get a 10 to 15% discount. Now, Todd Littman is the executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute, who's been advocating for this, and you join us now. Hey, Todd, how are you? Hi, Robin. Very well. Thank you for joining us. What are the benefits of this? What kind of incentives does this provide for drivers? Sure. Well, the the current system is grossly unfair to people who drive less than average. Uh, The less you drive, the less chance you have of having a crash. And so a fair and efficient transportation system, a fair and efficient uh, uh, insurance pricing system, um, rates your or bases your insurance on the number of kilometers that you drive every year. So it's great that they're offering a discount, but uh, a fully marginal, a fully efficient uh, premium means that every kilometer that you reduce uh, provides additional savings. That would be much more fair. So I'm glad ICBC is making progress on this, but it's nowhere near the the very uh, uh, efficient systems that other insurance companies in the world are offering. Are you suggesting there be a bracket system so you save this much at 5K, you save this much at 10K, you save this much at 20K? Well, the, the ideal system shifts from charging you per, uh, every vehicle year. So instead of going to your insurance broker and saying, and the broker says, you know, this is going to cost you, uh, let's say, $1,000 a year or, or, or whatever, Your broker tells you how much you're going to pay per kilometer driven. So your broker, if you're a low-risk motorist, you might be paying um, three or four cents a kilometer. And if you're higher risk, you're paying, uh, say, 10 or 15 cents a kilometer. But 
what that means is that every kilometer that you reduce gives you an opportunity to save money. You save money when you drive less. With, with what ICBC is offering, you're only, it's only gonna, going to offer savings for people who are currently driving a little bit more than 10,000 kilometers a year and decide to drive a little bit less rather than every kilometer uh, that they reduce providing savings. So there's, it's, it's good that they're, doing, that they're offering this discount, but it could be much, much better. How has this been a success in other jurisdictions? Give us an example. Sure. Well, there are a lot of insurance companies around the world that are applying uh, truly uh, marginal, what we call truly marginal. So every every kilometer that you reduce your mo- your, your driving, you pr- you achieve a little bit of savings. Um, and insurance companies, many insurance companies around the world, are doing this. Um, ICBC has been has been slow. Uh, they're they're only introducing this very uh, modest uh, discount, um, so so it's it's good that they're doing that, but it, it's it's nowhere near what could be offered and what would be much more fair and reward people for driving less. Well, we know that ICBC has a monopoly on insurance in this province. Should this open the door for other providers to come in so that they can provide these incentives and have a free market system? Well, I would the, the the first thing I would recommend is that ICBC offer fully marginalized insurance. So your your broker tells you what you're going to pay per kilometer driven, rather than per vehicle year, and um, and and if they wanted to offer both, so they could offer the current pricing system but the fully marginal pricing system. But if they can't do it, if ICBC is not uh, offering this progressive pricing offer uh, system, then sure, I think uh, it's time for to, to give motorists, uh, especially those who drive less than average and, and reduce their mileage, their annual mileage, give them that opportunity to choose it. Do you think that this program is going to boost ICBC's bottom line or hurt it? Well, uh, it, it, if it's done properly, pay-as-you-drive insurance can benefit insurance companies, but it does it in the right way. That is, um, motorists drive less, so they have fewer crashes, and so ICBC is experiencing a reduction in its is in its claims. And if it's done, if it if it's properly structured. Uh, ICBC should actually be much better off. How, how many drivers do you think would or will try to qualify for this? Well, that's what's interesting is, uh, according to ICBC, uh, about half of all the um, motorists that qualify for this choose it. So the potential is huge. Um, pretty much anybody who drives any vehicle that is driven less than about uh, 20,000 kilometers a year has the potential of saving money with pay-as-you-drive insurance. But drivers have to provide a proof proof from their odometers. Um, how can ICBC ensure there's no fraud with that? Does that increase the role of the brokers? Um, there are a couple ways to do it. The simplest is simply to require uh, the motorist to send a digital photo. Uh, you take a photo with your with your phone, 
uh, forward it along with your your insurance uh, application. And that's what many insurance companies now do. Uh, it's almost impossible to tamper with those with with that type of system. It's been tried. You know, the, the, that's a, a lot of insurance companies are using um, uh, camera uh, photos to to verify odometer readings, and that has proven to be very effective. So there's no problem using that as a way to track your, your annual mileage. Isn't there? There's always a loophole for this, Todd. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I always wonder about that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's reverse that. Is the current system fair? Let's say you and uh, you and a friend both drop, both um, have the same risk factor. So you're you're the same uh, driving experience and the dra- same kind of crash history, and you're driving similar vehicles in the similar um, uh, neighborhoods. But let's say you drive half as much as your as your friend. It's only fair that you should pay uh, lower insurance premiums because you are you have half the chance of having of causing a crash or being involved in a crash that somebody else's causes. So there's a lot of of uh, academic research, a lot of, uh, well, I should say a lot of industrial experience. So in the insurance, the automobile insurance industry, there's a lot of experience showing this, that, that people, that all else being equal, people who drive more, the, uh, increase their chance of having a crash or to put it more positively, people who drive less than average have much lower crash rates. And so it's only fair that, that lower mileage motorists should, should, uh, pay less, pay lower insurance premiums. You want to see this program expand, though, don't you? It would. It makes a lot of sense in terms of fairness, and it has tremendous potential as a way to reduce traffic congestion and accidents and pollution emissions. So it's what I consider to be a, a, um, a win-win strategy. It's a strategy that uh, provides consumer savings, it significantly increases affordability for a lot of motorists, and it provides these traffic reduction benefits. Todd, lots of insight. Thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. Thank you, Robin. In April, the Supreme Court of Canada said it would not hear a private clinic's appeal challenging BC's limits on private health care. It put to end Dr. Brian Day's 14-year legal fight, but did it put an end to his canby surgery business? Dr. Day joins us today. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, let's be clear. British Columbians can't access your clinic, but other Canadians in other provinces can. Am I correct? Absolutely correct, yes. I mean, this is, um, it just shows that there's no such thing as a Canadian health system because once you cross the provincial border, you're considered to be uh, a non-resident. So what it means is that if you are a non-resident of British Columbia, you have rights and privileges in British Columbia that the law denies to its own residents. And, you know, it's reminiscent of the former Soviet Union where there were stores and shops that uh, visitors and tourists go to, but the residents were not allowed in. So would it be fair to say that your business is consistent with patients coming in from other provinces and across the border? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. But we also, you know, there the other 
bizarre situation is that there are many exempted groups and the, the largest exempted groups are injured workers, workers' compensation, but federal employees and, you know, strangely enough, the very judges who did not want to hear the case are exempted from these laws themselves. So judges are allowed to go to private clinics because they're federal employees. And yet we have British Columbians going across the border to Bellingham to get care for cancer. It's covered by the province. How does that contradict what the province has been arguing all along specifically to your case? Well, it, it really doesn't surprise me because this is this is the government supporting a non-government healthcare in other in another country, and um, and we experienced it many years ago when we had a an agreement with the Ontario Health System to to carry out a, an unusual operation at that time, an an, an ankle replacement, and um, and the the cost all in was fifteen thousand dollars Canadian. They, when the government in Ontario at the time, the NDP government uh, found out, they um, they scrapped that and said, no, we're going to send this patient to the United States. And they sent the patient to to the United States at a cost of $35,000 U.S. instead of 15000 Canadian because they didn't support private health care in Canada, but they did, obviously, in the United States. Is this so mind-boggling to you? It's totally mind-boggling, and um, and you know I I think you, you described it as, as as our clinic going challenging the law. There are actually we actually had uh, five patients um, involved, and and the government has, uh, doesn't like to accept that. But uh, but I mean as you as you're probably aware, this has already been to the Supreme Court in Quebec, and they uh, they support the Supreme Court of Canada supported the right the fact that it was unconstitutional but so we were very shocked and so were many other people that they didn't even want to hear whether bc residents uh, should have the same rights that they granted to quebecers but take a look at what's happening with the 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 public health care system in bc it's been in crisis for a long time it obviously came to the forefront with covid um it's obviously an issue when you look at all the hospitals that are inundated with their er's etc the fact that you can't get a family doctor wasn't there an opportunity for the province to work with private health care so that it didn't have to be a two-tiered system it could have been a system that would have helped alleviate the backlog oh yeah yes and and um, you know we the the Contracting out to the United States when you could be contracting out in Canada doesn't make economic sense, but it also doesn't make sense generally. You know, the, in the in the 90s, the NDP government of the era um, came out with a, a, a report called Closer to Home, and they probably need to come out with one now called Further Away from Home because that seems to be their policy. But I think it's important to point out that it was a former NDP government in British Columbia that led the country in closing nursing schools and cutting back medical schools by 10 to 30 percent. They they are directly responsible for the shortages of doctors and nurses in, in Canada. And they, they also cut back on hospital beds. The uh, Roy Romano, who was the premier of Saskatchewan, closed 52 hospitals during his time as premier there. And his reward was to be made chair of uh, of the Commission on Healthcare. So not a lot of it, it. This is very frustrating for those of us 
um, on the front line who see patients suffering. And, and the Supreme Court of Canada in the Quebec case in 2005 ruled that Canadians were suffering and dying on weightless. And that is just worse now. COVID, yes, it highlighted a little bit, but this was happening well before COVID. Obviously, the Supreme Court of Canada wouldn't listen to your case. Are you and your legal team looking at other legal avenues? No. Well, you know, what, what, what's happened is this is now passed into the hands of the politicians, and they are going to have to deal with this. And then the, the reality is that, um, that, in my opinion, there is no monopoly that serves the consumer well, not one. And we have a government monopoly with no competition, and um, we know that um, a group called the Commonwealth Fund um, ranked um, 10 universal health systems around the world, and Canada came in ranked worst in access, worst in equity, and first, last in, in those two, and first in cost. So there is something drastically wrong with the way the government is running the health system. Finally, I just want to ask you one, uh, one more question. With the election in Alberta, could you see that government moving towards private care to alleviate the public system? Well, I, I, I think that they um, should, should won't be, shouldn't be as afraid of it because what you, all you have to do is, uh, and I use the hockey analogy here quite often, that if, if you were the 10th-ranked team in a league of 10 and were the most expensive, spending the most, wouldn't you look at what the top few teams like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Belgium, Germany, these aren't right-wing radical countries, and they all have a small degree of competition, and that makes the public system better because it's better in all of those countries. The public system in those countries way outperforms the public system in Canada, and that's what the data shows is what Canadian Institute for Health Information shows it's it's not arguable. So we are we are um, a very poor performing, and the Canadian taxpayer is getting very poor value from from money from the um, from the system as it stands. Brian Day, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. You're welcome. In the last hour, we were talking about the pressure on. BC's public health care system and the ways to alleviate alleviate it. Well, today, pharmacies are now helping doctors. Starting today, pharmacists can now prescribe for small illnesses and birth control. This is the province's attempt to alleviate the pressure on family doctors and help people who can't even get a family doctor. Joining us now is pharmacist Christine Antler. Hi, Christine. Hi. First Thanks for having me. Nice to have you. Uh, first of all, what was the process to make sure pharmacists are qualified to do this because they're not doctors? Sure. So, uh, yeah, today's a really exciting day for pharmacy in BC, and we're joining um, every other province across the country in uh, having pharmacists able to prescribe um, for a number of common conditions as well as uh, contraception. So uh, so this process was uh, did... Uh, did come about uh, after the government uh, changed some legislation and uh, we're really excited to have that ability. Do you think it took too long? Uh, I can't really speak to that. I think uh, every uh, every system is going to um, operate on its own uh, needs and, and uh, I think we're just really excited to have that launch today. Okay, so these pharmacists had to go through the College of Physicians, am I correct? 
so no, the College of Pharma- Pharmacists of BC actually um, uh, sets the standards, limits, and conditions for pharmacists to practice, uh, and the Ministry of Health um, uh, uh, sort of uh, passes the legislation uh, that governs uh, the scope of practice for pharmacy. So how many pharmacists in the province are now qualified to do this? Uh, I can't uh, I can't speak to that, but what I can say is that uh, for our organization, Pharmasave, we have uh, pharmacists across the across the province who are really excited and have completed the training that's required to uh, to offer the service. It's estimated that a million people in BC don't have a family doctor. How many people do you figure will use this service? Uh, it's hard to predict uh, how many people will use that service right now. I, I think what we've seen in Saskatchewan is uh, more than 15,000 patients receive care for these types of common conditions annually. Uh, and considering the population of British Columbia, uh, pharmacies in the province could carry out, you know, maybe 60,000 minor ailments assessments per year. Okay, can you give us scenarios, what kinds of illnesses or ailments that uh, you can help out with? Absolutely. So, uh, so what we see, we have uh, 21 different uh, common conditions or minor ailments that are within the scope of uh, pharmacists now to uh, assess and, if appropriate, prescribe, as well as uh, contraception. And so, what we've seen from other provinces, some of the more common ones that that people uh, seek treatment for at pharmacies are things like urinary tract infections, uh, cold sores pink eye, yeast infections, things that are really uh, uncomfortable and, uh, and uh, people want to get seen quickly and, and get them resolved. What situations won't you, won't you help, like absolutely won't help, just so that there, isn't, there aren't people who, sh- who are showing up with emergencies, basically? Sure. So, uh, I, mean, I mean, certainly there is a list of conditions, and I think the government and uh, our pharmacy association and, and Community pharmacies are doing their best to um, publicize those. I would uh, recommend that uh, people who are looking for treatment call their pharmacy uh, to discuss what uh, what conditions and how they're offering it. Today is the first day of the launch, so uh, community pharmacies are catering to the needs of their community, and each situation will change a little bit differently. Uh, certainly, if you're having any, you know, significant um, uh, symptoms, things like shortness of breath or chest pain, you know, things that you would normally requ- uh, call 911 for, uh, absolutely please do call 911. Um, but if it's a minor condition, these are things that are usually short-term conditions, um, you know, minimal or short-term um, follow-up is required uh, and, uh, and pretty uh, common conditions, uh, those would be the ones to see your pharmacist for. Are, are you allowed to give out antibiotics for infections, that kind of thing? So uh, there are a couple of conditions that are included, uh, things like bladder infections, where pharmacists do have the scope, if appropriate, uh, to prescribe uh, antibiotics. But what I would say is that uh, with every uh, common ailment or minor ailment uh, that people see their pharmacists for, they'll get uh, assessed and pharmacists will then determine uh, whether that's appropriate to prescribe, uh, whether that's an antibiotic or something else. Uh, and then, uh, and then, if not, uh, if there are more complicating factors, to then refer. How does your association feel about this? Does it make their work more difficult? Are they already overwhelmed with trying to do the job that they already have? Uh, I can't speak on behalf of the pharmacy association, so um, you know, I, I, I don't want to. Um, 
make a comment on that. But what I'd say is that in general, community pharmacists are excited to practice to new scope, uh, are, are looking for ways to support their communities and looking for ways to help patients uh, with their health. Do you think that this will encourage future pharmacists because the scope of work has expanded? Uh, it I'm might make sure the job I, more interesting. It might make the job more interesting for them. I can't. What, I, what I'll say is that uh, when I speak to students and pharmacy students, what they're excited about is helping helping patients with their health and helping British Columbians with their health. Uh, so I think you know anything that uh, improves uh, the ability to help help people with their health health and uh, do that, I think, uh, would make things uh, more. Uh, interesting or uh, or potentially more appealing. Christine, is this a short-term solution or a long-term solution for helping family doctors? Uh, well, I think uh, I don't want to um, predict whether this is, you know, what type of solution this is. Uh, but uh, what I'll say is that uh, pharmacists across the country have had this ability in some cases for a number of years Um Canadians really appreciate having that access, uh, having that other healthcare option uh, to seek treatment, uh, and uh, have really taken advantage of the services that pharmacists offer. I think this will alleviate doctors who are doing virtual calls as well for, for these smaller ailments. Um, I know that I personally have been waiting hours for a call on occasion to just for a simple prescription, so I think this will alleviate that as well. Yeah, we actually um, also had uh, some changes to pharmacy practice that happened about, uh, well, in mid-October uh, of 2022 as well that uh, allowed pharmacists to um, renew, if assess and renew prescriptions if appropriate. And so we're, we're really um, building uh, the capacity and, and building more uh, options to have patient care within the province. Okay, Christine, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, BC's housing minister has named 10 municipalities that will be required to build new homes or risk having the province forced through this higher density. Now, the list includes Abbotsford, Delta, Kamloops, Port Moody, Saanich, Vancouver, Victoria, and the districts of North Vancouver, West Vancouver, and Oak Bay. Mike Little is the mayor of the District of Vancouver, who has a lot to say about this issue. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you? Not too bad. Listen, the province hasn't even laid out targets or numbers or even an urban plan for this development. Does this spell disaster for you? Well, I mean, our, our biggest um, challenge in this is that it, it has to be, uh, we're, we're not opposed to growth, but it has to be in conjunction with infrastructure development. And so our community is already uh, behind the longest congestion lines in the entire province. Uh, and it doesn't even take an accident like today's uh, to shut down the bridge and, and clog the whole system up. And uh, we, we desperately need the uh, provincial government to be partnering on us uh, with us on transit and transportation in, uh, infrastructure improvements before we commit to significant growth in our community. I mean, you don't even have SkyTrain coming from North Vancouver. You don't have any of those things that would actually support density. Uh, that's correct. We have 200,000 people on the North Shore, and we have uh, the same number of lanes serving our community since 1968. So 
We have a major deficit in terms of provincial infrastructure supporting our community. And uh, if this is a platform for us to get those issues addressed in partnership with developing new housing, then, then this will be a good thing. Uh, but if it's just simply a matter of producing more units without the infrastructure to support them, this could be quite, uh, quite disastrous for our community. The province says it's going to force this through if you don't agree with them. I, I mean, don't you have bylaws in effect and all those things? How can the province override those? Well, they definitely have the the legislative hammer. There's no question about it. Uh, we take them at face value, though. They've said that uh, they would would only use those I, those tools as a last resort. And like I said, they have a very clear path to uh, positively partnering with us. It just uh, means they have to come to the table and support uh, our infrastructure and uh, along the way. And it's not just transportation infrastructure. I mean, we have uh, limited healthcare infrastructure on the North Shore, so. You know, I took my son to the urgent and primary care, and it took us six hours to get through. And uh, so uh, our, our community is very concerned that the type of growth that they're talking about is not actually going to help our problem. It's going to make our problems worse. How much housing do you think you need in your, in your municipality, and how much can you handle? We have a housing needs report that we produced. Uh, and just as an example, last year, our council approved 1,600 additional units uh, for us, which is a, a busier than normal year uh, for, for the district of North Vancouver. Um, but again, um, that bridge is not meeting our needs now, let alone into the future. And so it's very tough to put a number on it if we don't have uh, transit infrastructure um, along with it. Now, I'm, I'm the first one. If we get a commitment from the provincial government for, for bridge and transit improvements, uh, I'll, I'll lead the process of reorienting our official community plan and town centre plan to support transit as the backbone for that development. But um, without those commitments, it's very hard for us to move forward with uh, uh, accelerated rate of growth. Did you get any promises from the province and the feds with the recent municipalities conference in Toronto? Uh, no, uh, but uh, they definitely, um, I've been talking to them on transit issues uh, fairly frequently. I was in uh, Ottawa recently to talk about transit issues with the federal government. Um, we have been aggressively pursuing an ambitious plan uh, called the Mayor's Vision that we passed last year. It includes transit improvements to the North Shore. But i got to tell you, right now it's a $21 billion unfunded plan. Uh, and so we're going to need partners in both the province and the feds to be able to make that a reality. But it does have... Uh, significant, meaningful deliverables for the North Shore, including by year eight of the plan, a rapid transit connection to the North Shore, connecting up Metrotown to Park Royal. And um, and that, when, when TransLink looked at their projects, that was the number one ranked project out of 31 projects they considered in terms of getting people out of their cars and into transit. Um, it's expensive, but uh, there's no question about its value to um, getting people off the roads. Well, today, ICBC offered an incentive to get people off the roads by lowering or giving discounts if you if you drive less than 10K. Is that something that could help? Uh, definitely. There's a lot of people in the North Shore that would probably benefit from, from that because uh, well, we have a graying population on the North Shore, and many of our seniors um, are... Uh, are not uh, long-distance commuters, and uh, I'm sure they'll be able to benefit from that. Uh, um, you know, in our case, probably, we've got three vehicles at our house. I've got four kids, and um, uh, two of the three vehicles definitely would fit into that category. Um, and so, you know, maybe that, that helps, but uh, i got to tell you that the biggest challenge is going to be making sure that the new units that are produced are strategically and on price point that's actually going to take people out of the bridge traffic. Uh, the new units that are being produced on the North Shore are so expensive 
Um, just to give you a little bit of a sense, there was a family-sized unit, three bedrooms, uh, that is going for $6,200 a month in rent. And before that building was built five years ago, the same three-bedroom unit was coming in at $2,400 a month. And so just because something we've built additional and new units doesn't mean we're going to take people out of that bridge traffic. It has to be deep dive social and affordable housing focused on people who are working on the North Shore. But let's talk about affordable housing. Do you think that this plan that the province presented accounts for social housing? Is there any incentive for developers to build social housing? I was I was looking for it in the announcement. They used the word affordability one time in the announcement, but didn't actually talk about uh, the province partnering, um, and there's no dollars in this announcement for affordable housing. Um, and so uh, details to come, I guess. We're going to have to work with the province to see what we can partner with them through BC Housing or CMHC or other mechanisms to get um, deep dive social and affordable housing produced because if you just if you just produce the premium uh, market product that the the, there's no question there's a demand for uh, then you're actually going to exacerbate the problem with more people commuting over the bridges now this is a province that relies on real estate for its economy is this giving the developers the permission they need to build Oh, that's going to be a lot more complex than that. Uh, They're still going to have to come to the municipalities and find something that works. Uh, There is a lot of latent um, uh, density in our community. This is places that have been rezoned, that no uh, project has been put forward to it. So maybe this will incentivize those groups to get the projects underway. Um, Another aspect of it is um, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the amount of time that it takes to get a project uh, from uh, proposal to uh, construction. And uh, again, I, I feel a little bit like we've been thrown under the bus by the province because um, uh, overwhelmingly the, the, the process delays are driven by the provincial government. So it's us enforcing their electrical plans, their mechanical requirements, their fire code, their environmental regulations. And uh, we go over and above on environment, but almost all of the other times uh, that it takes for a project to be produced, it's, it's actually driven by provincial policy. And so I don't think it's fair that they blame municipalities for the delays in producing units when it's, it's almost entirely their policies that we're following. Well, we're going to hold you to it that you welcome more of this development. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you so much. Well, today's the start of public engagement for the Granville Street Planning Program. If you've ever walked down this part of Vancouver, which I do quite often, it's it's kind of a mess. Businesses are shutting down, lots of garbage on the street, but it's time to revitalize it. And to talk about that, we're joined by Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Robin. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. Listen, how is this public input going to work? Uh, Well, we're looking for everybody to bring forth their um, best, brightest and bold ideas. Uh, We kicked this off today. I'm standing right now in the Orkham in the iconic 800 block of Granville Street. Um, And we had all of our partners here together, Hospitality Vancouver Association, uh, Destination Vancouver was here, um, all um, working together um, in terms of revitalizing the street. It's a place that has been the heartbeat of the city of Vancouver. As you said, it's lost a little bit of its swagger, um, but uh, all everyone's coming together in terms of putting the energy back in the street and building up that same, um, all those memories that people remember of going to shows, going shopping, uh, going to music events at the Commodore. And so we're going to have a whole bunch of public engagement going on. There'll be a pop-up office that's set up on Granville Street in the 800 block that people can visit. Uh, There'll be walking tours. 
people can provide participate in workshops. They can provide their feedback online. So we're looking for people to bring their ideas forward. What's the first thing that your council would like to see change or fixed when it comes to the Granville Strip? Well, I mean, I think obviously we want to see eyes and ears on the street, lots of positive energy uh, during the day and the nighttime. So projects like 800 Granville um, is a great one uh, that would bring office workers in during the day, for example. Uh, New hotels. Uh, We know we have a desperate shortage of hotel rooms in the city um, so that we can have more visitors coming in. And that's uh, support, obviously, for local businesses um, the healthy and thriving tourism sector. We've got a desperate shortage of hotel rooms. We're actually going to, our supply will exceed demand in the next five years. Um, so people are not going to be able to visit our city if they won't be able to find a room. Um, we want to see looking at bringing the neon back. Um, there's a huge history and legacy for the neon on Granville Street that created that real destination visual for everybody that was so fun and iconic. Um, so lots of great ideas. And I think of revitalization of the public space. Uh, so if you think back to the Granville Promenade that we trialed the last couple of summers when we worked with TransLink, took the buses off the street, made it pedestrian only on the weekends, and then people were able to come down and enjoy entertainment outside, patios and tables, kind of really enjoy the street. So looking for that opportunity to um, potentially pedestrianize it, expand, and look at an investment in creating more public space or or potentially large public plaza. Do you think that the businesses would like that corridor to be shut down so that it is pedestrian only? Um, I think that uh, we trialed the promenade to see what the vibe was like, and it felt like a new street. Um, Really, energy was incredible. Everybody was together outside. There were people coming down with kids, dogs, um, loved ones, walking, uh, rollerblading in, um, and it really was a positive energy. I just came back from Montreal. Uh, they pedestrianize a lot of their streets in the summertime, uh, and you just people just flock to them. You can really see the support for it, and all of the cafes, ice cream shops, all the local businesses were thriving. So I think that's an important conversation to have. Um, but we are kicking off the public consultation, so we want to hear everybody's ideas, and we'll see what people think. For sure. I, but, you know, when I think about the buses trying to skirt that pedestrian area, and they probably had to take Seymour, and Seymour is, like, not pleasant to drive down either. There's there's a lot of construction, et cetera. So that's obviously something that you have to factor, don't you? Uh, yeah, you always need to factor that. But I think where there's a will, there's a way. Um, other cities are doing it, and uh, they're winning in terms of creating these great spaces for people. So I think that's something that we need to look at on the table. Would the city, would the council consider a, a tax break for businesses in that area to encourage them uh, to think, come down, encourage them to, you know, open up? I think what we're doing is investing in the services that the businesses have told us that they really want to see. And so that has been a significant increase in public safety um, uh, in terms of hiring new police officers. We've talked about mental health nurses working uh, really closely with the province, identifying that we have gaps in treatment services. We're investing more into graffiti and cleanup. Um, and that's what we hear from our businesses is that they want to know that those tax dollars are being spent well. You know, you have a big hole left by Nordstrom leaving. Is there any business that you could see coming in there to revitalize, be part of the revitalization of Granville Street? Yeah, again, that could be some of the ideas that come forward. I think of things like potentially a tech hub. Um, Vancouver is just thriving for tech uh, of all types, whether it's virtual reality or sort of pushing the envelope. Um, and so uh, bringing office workers in there as a potential um, option. Uh, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say they love things like the Italy-style, uh, sort of adult-style food courts where there's an experience and lots of uh, local uh, restaurateurs and foodie leaders that uh, are showcased in the space. So um, I think there could be some really interesting ideas for that. I saw that in Toronto they opened up Italy 
they did. In I was a, in, a in spot. Toronto last week, and I didn't stop into that one, but I was in Montreal just a few days before that. And they have one called um, the, Cent- the Cent- Il Central, uh, right in the heart of Montreal. And it's incredible. You go in and it's just packed. People enjoying all kinds of diverse local foods that really showcase our local cultural groups. Um, and people loved it. You know, a lot of people say it's scary to go downtown. It's scary to go down Granville Street. It's scary to go, you know, in that whole area. And, and it, it feels destitute on weekends. What do you say to that? I'd say that's exactly why this revitalization is so important, um, that we are investing in creating spaces that have life and energy that people want to be in and that feel safe and welcoming to people. Um, They're clean. They're safe. uh, There's great things to do. uh, There's activities happening at all times of the day and the evening. And so that's exactly why we're doing this. How long do you think this revitalization plan will take and, and to make sure that you get it right? Uh, it's slated to be about an 18-month process, um, but we'll move some other pieces forward concurrently, like looking at new hotel applications. Uh, as I said, we need the new hotels for short of rooms. Um, also looking at advancing projects like 800 Granville. Um, but yeah, we do want to do this right, but this is um, over a year and a half an expedited, expedited timeline because, as you noted, this is an, an area that needs some help and it needs some TLC. Who are the main stakeholders uh, that are getting a say in all of this? Uh, well, the, the, the ultimate stakeholder is the residents of Vancouver. Because uh, this is a, a neighbor, this is Vancouver's neighborhood, it's Vancouver's entertainment district. But a lot of the other partners that have really been um, championing this, Hospitality Vancouver Association, so a lot of those hospitality businesses in the area, Destination Vancouver is obviously representing our tourism sector, Good Night Out Vancouver, that um, great nonprofit that helps to ensure that people have a safe night out when they're going downtown and they're enjoying the nightlife. Uh, so there's a, a number of different stakeholders coming to the table. Okay, Sarah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. June is National Indigenous History Month. It's an important month to recognize and celebrate the rich history and the contributions of our First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples across the country. Now, TikTok has been a medium to celebrate this month. This year, however, there's a bit of a twist. The 2023 TikTok Indigenous Visionary Voices List. And to explain this to us, we're joined by Ashley Michelle, who's a member of the Chewapnik First Nation. Hi, Ashley. Hi there. First of all, how is this different from regular TikTok? Uh, How is this regular from regular or from regular TikTok? Yeah, we're talking about TikTok Indigenous Visionary Voices list. Mm hmm. Um, I just think it's really cool that TikTok's decided to highlight nine Indigenous creators um, from different, like, like you were just saying, from Inuit to Indigenous to Métis. We're all different. We all have our different stories to tell. So I think that it's just really cool that TikTok decided to choose nine of us this time as the first ever um, visionaries for Indigenous, um, the Indigenous visionaries. I just thought that was really cool. So what kinds of stories can we expect to see on this on this channel from the list um we have well there like i said there's nine other indigenous creators we're all different so i'm from the small indigenous business section um and then we have the creators as well so i know one of the other creators is notorious cree and he likes to share about powwows and dance and um uplifting messages and we have um like myself part of the small business Um, Indigenous section. So I like to share my story as an Indigenous creator and artist, self-taught seamstress um, through TikTok. Um, And then we have the other Indigenous um, creators as well who are featured on the list 
that you can go check out as well. Tell us more about what you're gonna you're gonna present. So on my, um, I guess what I um, show on TikTok and what my content is is I like to educate others about Indigenous. Um, issues and Indigenous resiliency, which ties into my business because I like to create designs that bring awareness. So one of the designs that I've created is called the Woman Warrior Design. And the Woman Warrior Design brings awareness to um, the missing and murdered Indigenous women, uh, girls, and two spirits across Canada and USA. So that's kind of like what I do on my content with TikTok. What does Indigenous History Month mean for you personally? So personally, for National Indigenous History Month, I think that it's an opportunity for people to put action to what reconciliation means to them by listening to Indigenous people, amplifying our voices while continuing to educate themselves on our history and resiliency. Um, but it's also a way to recognize the unique diversity amongst Indigenous nations. So I guess as Indigenous people, we're natural-born storytellers. So we all have our own stories to tell, and it's an opportunity for me personally to share mine and hopefully inspire and um, educate others. Is there anything about your family that you'd like to share? (sighs) About my family? Well, I come from four generations. Well, we are four generations. Like, that's my business name, Four Generations Creations. Um, I have a grandmother who is a residential school survivor. Her name is Charlotte Manuel. Um, She is still learning her language. And I have another grandmother um, who unfortunately passed in November. She was a residential school survivor too. And she, um, I actually spent over 600 hours of the machine immersion learning underneath of her. Um, So I'm just trying to tie the language and the culture, reclaiming what, um, you know, residential schools took away from a lot of Indigenous communities and tying that back into my business and kind of educating others through my platform on TikTok, um, just inspired by my kids, my grandmothers. Oh, that's a great story. TikTok is obviously catered to young people. Is that an opportunity to get them and encourage them to learn the languages that have been lost? Yeah, actually, I really like to, um, just because I'm a learner, like I will never be considered fluent Unfortunately, uh, I'm trying to raise my daughter in the language as well, but I do use my platform and I know a lot of other Indigenous creators as well use their platform to um, uh, teach the language, Um, learning or showing, I guess, um, ways to say their language. Like there's so many different nations. I'm part of the Sequatmic Nation. Um, So personally, I would post videos saying how to say hi in Sequatmic Chin. So I'd post a video saying wait, which is hello in Sequatmic Chin. Um, but yeah, it is a way for younger, the younger generations to um, learn and preserve the language. You mentioned truth and reconciliation. I know that in September, there is a national holiday to honor that. What's different for this month compared to that? Um, so I feel like National Indigenous History Month is Um, I guess, an opportunity to share our story just as well as Truth and Reconciliation um, Day as well. But Truth and Reconciliation Day, I guess, would be more... um, Do you think it's more of a somber reflection and this month maybe more about celebration? You're right. You're right. And I I do believe also it is important that we do reflect on the history of Indigenous people. It is so important to learn from the past, educate ourselves um, as... Uh, well, educate ourselves in the, in the ways that we can, but it's also important to remember that Indigenous people are resilient. Like, we are still here. We, are, we aren't just our past. We are still here, and we're thriving. Um, so it's not, it's, 
I think it's important to, I guess, just not focus on the history, right? Like, that's really important, but um, also focus on the resiliency part of it, too. And there are uh, there are obviously milestones uh, in your history to celebrate. Is there anything that you could talk about about that? Um, about the history? Mm-hmm. Is there any particular milestone that you feel needs to get uh, attention on, on this, on this, on this, on this, in this month? Um, like for all Indigenous communities? Is yeah. that what you're kind of... Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much that I can, I guess, offer to try to bring attention to, but um, I'm from I'm from Kamloops. I'm from uh, the Kamloops Indian Band here, and we we have our residential school where we found 215 plus. And um, I just think that you know, being from Kamloops and having this platform on TikTok, um, I don't I don't feel like it's my responsibility solely to bring attention to that. But um, it's one of the things that I would like to bring, um, not as a milestone, I guess, but like just bring more awareness to, I guess. But um, yeah, I'm not really sure. That's no, that's a that's a very very fair yeah. answer. If there's if there's one thing that our listeners will take away from this this TikTok Indigenous Visionary Voices list, what would it be? If there's one thing they could take away from the Visionaries list is, I guess that just recognize that we are a unique diversity um, of Indigenous people, um, and we all have different stories to tell. So whether it be from the small businesses, whether it be from creators, whether it be from artists, we all have our own stories to tell. And just take the time that you you can to listen and learn from us, amplify our voices. Um, but there are other ways to also support Indigenous artists, businesses and creators this month as well. So things like maybe attending a powwow or reading a book um, by an Indigenous creator, um, Simple things such as following Indigenous artists, commenting on our posts, sharing our our content, um, doing your own research, educating yourself. So those are just some other important things that other people can do to support Indigenous people during this month. This is a lot about education and some positive stories, don't you think? Exactly. Okay. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And um, let's all um, honour Indigenous History Month. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me.